do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. That guy has a really nice voice. I told, I told Blake when he did that, he said, you made me sound a lot better than I actually do. You're very gifted at what you do. So listen, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is a very uh, convicting passage uh, of scripture, and so it is with fear and trembling that we should approach it. And actually, it talks about evidences that we are the children of God. So, what I'd like to do this morning is share it within the context of hope. Therefore, hence the title on the top of your bulletin the hope of God's children. But before I do that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much because you are our living hope. And so as we preach your word this morning, Lord, we look to you to minister grace to the hearers to help me to speak with clarity and accuracy the things that are contained in your word, that you would remove distractions from our heart that would keep us from hearing what you're saying to us on a personal level. We pray that Christ might be exalted and that lives might be changed, challenged, and transformed as a result of the preaching of your word. And we believe you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have four children, uh, Samantha, Christian, Tito, and Caleb. And uh, I don't know uh, if you've experienced this with your children, but my youngest son, Caleb, he has a very, very unique diet. He likes Cheetos. Cheese puffs, Cheez-Its, cheese, mac and cheese. On occasion, he'll eat oatmeal. And then other than that, he just does smoothies. But not any type of smoothies. He likes Lala smoothies. And so I usually wind up going to the supermarket to look for Lala smoothies because Caleb has these for breakfast, and he usually drinks anywhere from four or six of them a day. So I go to the supermarket, and I grab all the lalas that are on the counter, and I put them in my shopping cart, and I leave the counter empty. So if you're going looking for lala smoothie, and you didn't find any, it was probably me. And so uh, we have tried, we really have tried to introduce Caleb, to other types of smoothies. So what we would do is we would buy another brand of smoothie and put it in his sippy cup. And so we give him the sippy cup. Here's your smoothie, Caleb. And so Caleb would taste the smoothie and he would say, "Uh uh-uh, not smoothie. And what he means is this is not Lala smoothie. This is not the brand of smoothie that I like to drink. 
His taste buds give him evidence that that is not the kind of smoothie that he likes. His taste buds give him evidence that it is the type of smoothie that he likes. In the same way that Caleb's taste buds give him evidence of the genuineness of his smoothie, there are evidences that we are children of God. When we have placed our hope in Christ, there are evidences that confirm that fact. The verses we're going to teach through today are very challenging because they basically let us know what it's supposed to look like when we become converted. So we're going to look at the evidence that we are children of God, and we're going to do so understanding that these evidences are evident in our lives through the hope that is in the gospel. The gospel is the hope of the children of God. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he teaches us that we are born again to a living hope. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the writer teaches us that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So we see that our hope is in the gospel. The fact that we were born into sin, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, the scripture goes further to teach us that we were by nature children of wrath, that we inherited this genetic disease from our father Adam, and we were all born Sinners, therefore, God sent forth his son who lived a perfect life of obedience according to the law and died on the cross a gruesome death for you and for me was buried and placed in a tomb and rose again bodily on the third day to give us the hope of eternal life and to authenticate the claim that he is God. And now when we repent of our sins and we believe the core facts of the gospel, that Jesus is God and he died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and he rose again from the third day and we receive Christ into our lives, we are saved. That is our hope. Having said all that, let's begin our, the reading of our text in verse number one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we shall be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In verse one, we are taught that God saves us as a sovereign act. Of his love. The word see, which is the Greek word idetes, is both a command and an exhortation to the reader to pay close attention to the rest of the statement. The adjective rendered what kind, or the word 
patopen occurs only seven times in the New Testament. And it implies a reaction of astonishment and usually of admiration of a person or a thing. The expression conveys both a qualitative and quantitative force. Oh, what glorious measure of love. When we are the children of God, we are so because God loved us. This brings us to our first point. Our hope in Christ is established by love. God's love is a saving love. And many of us are familiar with the ver- uh, John 3:16 where it says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Therefore, believers can live in hope because we have experienced God's love in an eternal saving way. We have been adopted into the family of God. God's love toward us is the reason that we are his children. There is no merit There is no claim on our behalf. In fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 teaches us that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That love is evident in our lives, not only by God saving us, but by the way we love one another. In John 13, 35, Jesus said this, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. You see, we don't have to earn our salvation. We did not do anything to gain his approval. It was solely an act of God's sovereign love. Too many times we find ourselves on what Robert H. Thune calls the gospel treadmill, working hard to try to earn God's approval. Uh, My father has uh, neurological issues, and from time to time he'll have a uh, manic episode. And by the grace of God, he hasn't had one in a long time. But years ago, he had a manic episode, and as he was recovering, I was trying to establish some type of normalcy by taking him to the gym. And so we get on the treadmill, and I put him on the treadmill next to him, and I set his speed at a slow pace so that he can walk and, you know, start getting in a rhythm. And I got on the treadmill next to him and started running. I like, I like running. I'm a runner. And I would get on the treadmill and I was getting it and sweating. I can't run that fast anymore because I'm a little bit older. But against the advice of my doctor, I do it anyway. So, but, and so I'm on the treadmill and I'm sweating. I'm in a rhythm. And I look to the side and my father had 
increase the speed on his treadmill. And so he's hanging on the bars and his feet are bouncing on the conveyor belt of the, of the treadmill. And the lady next to him has the audacity to ask, are you all right? And so in my mind, I can hear Max Kellerman saying, is this a real question? And so I get my father up, I stop the treadmill and I said, dad, why didn't you just let go of the treadmill? And he said, I kept trying to pull myself up. In the same way my dad was incapable of picking himself up, we are unable of saving ourselves. Now, the latter part of the verse, of verse one, teaches us that the reason the world or the systems of the world and the people in it don't understand or recognize us as children of God is because they don't know God. To those who are outside of God's kingdom, God's love is unintelligible. To those who are not saved, God's love is unreasonable. To those who are lost, God's love is unfathomable because they do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 records these words. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. Which brings us to verse number two. Let's pick up our reading there. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The hope that we have is that one day we will be like Christ. We will have an eternal body free from the presence of sin. You see, in salvation, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God in hell. In sanctification or growing in holiness, as we like to say, we are being delivered from the power of sin. And finally, one day in glorification, when we receive that glorious brand new body, we will be set free from the presence of sin. And we will be like him because we will be in his presence. We will see him as he is. And anyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Now, the idea of purifying oneself does not mean that one can generate their own sanctification. Rather, it emphasizes the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which does not take place apart from the believer's obedience and use of sanctifying grace. This is a typical call to the Christian to obey Scripture 
in all things. This is what our hope produces. And when we have this hope, we will want to be pure even as he is pure because the Holy Spirit changes our affections, which brings us to point number two. Our hope is characterized by purity. When we are saved, when we have the hope of eternal life, this hope motivates us. This hope inspires us. This hope compels us to want to pursue purity. I am deeply concerned about the church in America. When I read writers like E.M. Bounds, A.W. Tozer, Andrew Mary, Corey Ten Boone, and I compare the brand of Christianity that they espoused versus the brand of Christianity that we have in America, I come to the conclusion that it is not the same thing. The level of passion, the level of devotion for prayer and the pursuit of holiness, the hatred for sin, and the love of righteousness that they had is oftentimes sorely missing in Christianity in America. And it's what he's writing to us here. It is a heart posture. It is a pursuit of fruitfulness. It is a dissatisfaction with mediocrity. It's a desire for holiness. You see, God's love empowers us and inspires us to grow in holiness through the hope that is in us. These verses are a call to active righteousness. The scriptures teach us about two kinds of righteousness, active righteousness and passive righteousness. Passive righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, which was credited to us when we got saved. God, when we repented of our sins and we received Christ, God credited to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. You will never be any more righteous than you are because God credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. The theological term is imputation. But then there's thing called active righteousness or the righteous acts of the saints. And these verses are calling us to active righteousness not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being called to perform righteous acts. This hope that springs forth from God's love is not only salvific, but it is transformational. However, the process of transformation is not always neatly structured. 
It's not always what we expect. It can sometimes be messy, complicated, unexpected, yet God is sovereign even over our sanctification. No one knew this better than the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, the night Jesus was betrayed, looks at him and says, Lord, even though all these might leave you, I won't leave you. In fact, I am willing to go to death with you. Oh, Peter, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. And we know the story. Peter denies Jesus and Jesus looks at him and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. But God in his sovereign, restorative, sanctifying love, when Jesus rose from the dead, the gospel of St. Mark says some really interesting words. As the women are in the tomb and they are encountered by Jesus, Jesus gives them instructions. This says, go tell the disciples and Peter. He gives Peter a personalized invitation. Yes, the one who betrayed him. The one who looked him in the face and told him that he would die for him. He gives him a personal invitation. And even after he was restored, even after Pentecost and he receives the Holy Spirit and he preaches this marvelous message where thousands are saved, Peter still struggled with his sanctification because if you read your Bible in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has to call him out on hypocrisy. That's sanctification for you. Yet, Peter writes to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, be holy as he is holy. And his introduction to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of the blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He understood that the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. And he is the one who empowers us to obey. Therefore, he challenges us to have an urgency for sanctification. He challenges us to have a focused determination for holiness. Peter understood the importance of having our affections pointed in the right direction. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to your knowledge brotherly kindness, and on and on. He lists a bunch of virtues, but he says, make every effort. He's talking about a heart posture, a determination, having our affections pointed in the direction of sanctification. And this brings us to verse number four. Let's pick up our reading there. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As I was thinking about these verses and Pastor Nate had asked me this to speak and I looked at the date, I said, I said, great, on the 4th of July, I get to tell everybody that if you're living in unrepentant sin, you're a son of the devil. Thanks, Pastor Nate. These are some very poignant verses here, but some people uh, may have even difficulty reading these verses. They're very straightforward and challenging verses. And for the person who is living a life of habitual, unrepentant sin, these verses read as an indictment against your Christianity. These verses call us to ask ourselves, am I a believer? Or do I think I'm a believer and I'm really not? Am I someone who has heritage Christianity, which means my great-granddaddy was a Christian, my granddaddy was a Christian, my daddy was a Christian, and therefore I'm a Christian? Or are you an unbeliever who likes to attend church for one reason or another? Maybe it's tradition. I've always gone to church. Maybe you like to attend church for sentimental reasons because, you know, this is, you know, you grew up in church and you have some sentimentalism attached to church. Maybe you like to attend church because your family gets together and does lunch after the fact. <laughs> Somebody's hungry, so I better hurry up. <laughs> Yet, there, when we look at these reasons and we ask ourselves these questions, we have to think about the fact, is there fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? Is there evidence of God transforming me? Am I, when I sin, am I convicted? Do I want to grow beyond where I'm at? When I don't read my Bible, when I don't pray, when I don't go to church, is there something in me that pulls me and says, you need to be doing these things? If there is a lack of those things that I just mentioned, I would really encourage us to do a really honest heart check. These verses are a sober reminder that the nature of our salvation 
will not allow us to live a lifestyle of habitual sin. Let me make this observation that is very interesting. The word sin, sins or sinning appears 10 times within seven verses. Now, let me reiterate some of the statements that John makes. Here's number one. Practicing sin is lawlessness. Number two, Jesus appeared to take away our sin. Number three, there is no sin in Jesus. And number four, no one born of God keeps on sinning. These verses give us a stern warning about living in habitual sin, which brings us to our third point. Our hope warns us against sin. Why? Because sinning or living a lifestyle of habitual sin does not line up with our hope. Let me give you these three final letters and then we'll close. Letter A. Sin does not line up with the law of God. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is continuing to break the law of God and not only doing that, not even feeling internally anything about breaking the law of God. It's the absence of the law of God in our hearts. Letter B, sin does not line up with the work of Christ. Christ appeared to take away our sin. Christ died as a substitute for our sin. Letter C, sin does not line up with the work of the Holy Spirit. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us. And so when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, it becomes difficult for us to live a lifestyle of sin. Now, let me conclude with a quote from Oswald J. Smith's book, The Consuming Fire. He states that there are often four groups of people we come across in evangelism. The first group are the unsaved. Those who do not know Jesus can be their personal savior and do not call themselves Christian. They must be invited to repent. Backsliders, they have slid away from the Lord and lost their first love, and they are cold in their work for the gospel. They neglect reading their Bible and prayer and never witness. They must be brought back to fellowship with Christ. The reason for their backsliding is always sin. Show them that they must confess their sins, that they have made that has made them backslide. Then there's the uncertain, those who do not know if they're saved or lost. They have no assurance of their salvation, feeling one day that they are children of God and the next day that they are lost. They are in a state of permanent 
uncertainty. They must be invited to come back because they have no value for God until they know that they have passed from darkness to light. And finally, the defeated. We must show them that God gives the victory not by trying hard or by our own endeavors or by our own energy, but by him. Our Lord Jesus gives us the victory in the same way he gives us salvation as a gift that cannot be earned. He also gives us victory by his son. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And I know these are some very challenging verses, but I want us as we enter into this 4th of July weekend to really consider if we fall under any of these categories, the unsaved, the uncertain, the backslidden, or the defeated. If any of those describe you, there is hope in the gospel. I'm going to ask you to stand and ask the prayer team to come. They're going to be here to pray with you. We're going to end in a time of worship, and we're going to end in a time of ministry and prayer. And I pray, and I encourage you, if God is tugging at your heart, if God is ministering to you, not to leave here without first doing business with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word because your word is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it divides even to the asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it discerns even the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so this morning as we, Lord, reflect upon the words that we've preached and taught, help us to make good decisions for your kingdom empowered by your sovereign grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.